Hey everybody, we are Robert, Martin, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Welcome back to Snakes and Otters, everyone. I'm Robert. I'm Martin. And I'm Francis. All right, this is episode 49. This is one of our history episodes that we're going to do. And our topic today is going to be the first of four upcoming episodes on the Civil War, the American Civil War, for those of you not listening in America. And this first one we're calling Burnside's Folly, the Battle of Fredericksburg. So we're going to talk about uh, Ambrose Burnside and uh, the absolutely disastrous battle and leadership of the Army of the Potomac that uh, was his to call, uh, call his own. Uh, now, next month when we do this, we're going to move on to the, chronologically the next big battle, which is Chancellorsville, uh, called Lee's Masterpiece, the Battle of Chancellorsville. After that, of course, uh, we'll be in July, so we'll be doing the Battle of Gettysburg, and uh, that will be a what-if. We haven't done a what-if in a while, so I'm really looking forward to that one. What if uh, Stonewall Jackson was president at Gettysburg? And then we're going to finish up the Civil War series with the one that uh, Martin is very anxious to do, and that is uh, the key in our pocket, uh, Grant's victory at Vicksburg. So I know he's really anxious for that one. Uh, just like I'm anxious for the uh, for the what if and Gettysburg. You know, that's Gettysburg. Really, that's one we all have a special place in our hearts because that's where our Civil War fascination really kicked off. Uh, was with Gettysburg. Yeah, and we've been the there together. And that's we've right. been there together. That's true. That was one of the greatest man trips that we have done. Uh, yeah, it'll be 20 years ago this November, actually. And yes, you are correct. correct. You are correct. Yes. We yes. we walked the pickets charge mm-hmm. battlefield area. Uh, anyway, I think that was one of the highlights, just in the sense that that was just one of the most moving things about that battlefield, walking that that stretch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that Sunday morning was really was really awesome. We we did it in three days, and it's a ten hour drive one yeah. way. So we uh, so, we rode hard and uh, saw everything and rode back again. That's right. So before we digress too much on uh, on uh, Gettysburg, because we're we're two episodes away from that, uh, right. let's get back to uh, Ambrose Burnside. So, interesting man. Uh, Martin has some, some biographical uh, information. Let's, uh, let's do a little bit of background on man, and uh, we'll, we'll take off from there. Well, you know, um, Ambrose Burnside is one of history's great examples of the Peter Principle. Yes. He got, he got promoted pretty much to the level of his incompetence. Um, he was a professional. He's not a political general. He was a West Point guy. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, when he graduated, he was posted to the artillery and not to engineers or cavalry, uh, which are, of course, the desired posts. Um, he m- did see some combat in the West, um, but missed out on combat during the Mexican-American War. Um, his unit arrived too late to take place in any combat. And... Like many professionals um, in this era, he would eventually resign his commission in the 1850s to go into business. He had designed a firearm, the Burnside Carbine, and was going into business to produce that weapon. Um, And much like some of the other generals, uh, Grant and Sherman in particular, who also resigned their commissions to go into business, uh, the business failed. And at the start of the war, he was pretty close to broke. Uh, He was working uh, at a railroad, uh, working for George McClellan. 
So um, when the war starts, of course, all the all the professionals are brought back in, and uh, and again, his his relationship with McClellan helps him. But uh, curiously, he basically understood himself uh, that he was not the kind of guy that should be in command of a large army. So he initially refused command of uh, the Three army. Three times, of the wasn't it? Three times? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he only accepted it when uh, Lincoln said he was going to give it to Joe Hooker, and uh, Burnside couldn't stand Joe Hooker, so he said, yeah, I'll take it. Um, but he's, he's, uh, he's just one of those guys that just didn't – he was a good soldier. He could take orders, but he just doesn't have that imagination really to – plan and follow through with command of a large force like the Army of the Potomac. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably the key to understanding his failures uh, on the battlefield and where he had success. He didn't have spectacular success, but he was competent below that level of commander of the Army. Uh, he was not one of those guys that, that just slaughtered his men for no reason uh, which you know we know we've seen on the battlefield because they, they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, he was a guy that um, he he was, and I imagine this is why he was good at the railroad because he went back to that multiple times. So he didn't screw that up so badly that another railroad wouldn't hire him. And I think that's because the railroad is one of those things that is, speaks to his strength, and that is he can organize and plan and you execute it. You don't need to be dynamic. You don't need to think on your feet because the railroad schedules are the railroad schedules. <laughs> you know, that's what they are. It's not like you're laying down some new track because you need to go over here this day. You know, you're going on the same track every single day. And that probably appeals to his strengths. Well, he's a perfect example of the uh, code of honor quotation that you gave last time, Robert, uh, yeah. that once the shooting starts, uh, that then the plan goes, you know, it's done, you know, and the extra rotary uh, impeller. Oh, very good. I like that. That's yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly wait, right. Wait, wait, and, uh, wait, wait. Grant was Give famous. Again. You mean yeah. that again, Robert? It's when the excrement hits the rotary impeller. All right. That's exactly. I love it. Absolutely, I, like I love it. Yes. Uh, but yeah, he he's famous, and you know, I think he knew that on some level that he couldn't do that. That he he wasn't he was that wasn't what he was. I mean, he knew himself well enough. I think Martin, you said this at the beginning. He knew himself. He didn't want to take this, but as you say, he also knew that Joe Hooker would be an absolute disaster, which of course history is uh, yeah. confirms him in that. Which our, our next episode will talk a little bit about that. Uh, and I just find him fascinating that he knew his own weaknesses and yet he still was subject to them. Mm-hmm. Well, that I think is one of the. Um uh, as form, my former pastor used to say, uh, you know, our greatest strengths are often our greatest weaknesses. And that's true for, for Burnside. His strength is that organization, that ability to follow a plan. But his weakness is he can't deviate from the plan. Yeah. So they're very much tied together. Um, before we go on, um, you know, Let's. Uh, I want to pause because we didn't do this at the beginning of the episode. Uh, you know, we are still on lockdown. Uh, we are all actually broadcasting from our own home offices. That's right. So we probably sound a little bit different than we have in past episodes. So 
you know, I'm sitting here in my basement, uh, Martin's in his, and, and Francis is in his office. Uh, not in his basement. He's out of the man cave, and he is on the first floor. He first floor of the back of the building, yes. I am so <laughs> jealous. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, we're, we're, we're in the middle of lockdown still. Uh, those of us who can work from home still are. And, uh, you know, we are, blink. at this point, no end in sight. Uh, and this is uh, our, our first episode in in, uh, in the month of May, obviously. So it is May Day, May first. So all kinds of big things around that. Uh, you know, it's it just lots of significance about what's going on and what date it is. I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, I'd like to raise a glass of bourbon. Yes, yeah, so we're not sharing bourbon. We're, we are we're not sharing our own glass, our own bottles. That's correct. That's right. Yeah. I am drinking uh, some of my, my favorite, the Woodford Double Oak. It is my absolute top go-to bourbon. I went back to my, my top bourbon, Basil Hayden, uh, which I still have plenty of that on hand. So it's a, kind yes. of my... Very good right. bourbon. Very good. And Martin, what do you have today? I've got some Larceny. I just opened the bottle. Excellent. So clink, clink, clink. It's a brand new fresh bottle of Larceny. It's mmm, uh, tasty. Yes. So anyways, I want to raise a glass. I want to give a toast to those who are... Uh, working in the medical profession, uh, oh, yeah. those who are on the front lines dealing with this, and also those in the service industry that still have to man their jobs and have That's to right. deal with the grocery store, the Lowe's, the Home Depots, you know, those that are deemed essential services uh, for whatever reason, because uh, they're really literally putting their lives on the line for the rest That's of right. us. So, and uh, shippers and truckers. And truckers, yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. uh, the whole logistics uh, warehouse people, industry, yes. You know, the the whole supply chain uh, is really uh, it's uh, you know hidden heroes. You know, they go to work every day just like everybody else, uh, but nobody really thinks about the jobs they do because it is so hidden. But not anymore. It's really right. been kind of brought to the forefront. Yep. They're keeping America uh, fed, and, and they are and yeah. surviving. Uh, may not be able to keep the toilet paper on the shelves, but they're keeping us fed. It keeps coming though. It keeps yeah, coming. That's right. You know, it'll it, refill. That's right. That's the beauty so, of it. It's not like the Soviet Union where you would get toilet paper once every six months. No, you get it every few days. That's right. So a toast to them and uh, to their safety. Amen to that. Here, here. Okay. So back to burn flow. So, um, as with a lot of the guys we, we bring up, and, um, uh, and I, I say guys specifically because we have yet to do a female on our heroes, and that is something we are looking to, uh, to correct. So those of you out there thinking, man, these guys are just a bunch of sexists. No, we just haven't gotten around to the ladies yet. Uh, well, yeah, they're there. They're there. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're working um, on them uh, as we We're speak. guys. I mean, you know, it, there's probably some of that guys pick guys, ladies pick ladies. So, But we, will, we are going to try and uh, branch out uh, to be... Uh, to, 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 to broaden the perspective, so to speak. Broaden the perspective. I like that. Yes. That's, that's a good right. way of phrasing it. So, heroes everywhere. There, there are, yeah. I mean, as we just talked about, you know, uh, those guys are heroes on the front line. Uh, and, by, and, you know, yes, guys, the generic sense. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, interesting thing about him, as we've talked about, about Burnside, is that uh, he's probably more self-aware than uh, many of his peers. Uh, in the sense that he knows is, uh, well, he's more self-aware than those who are unsuccessful. Uh, those who are oh. successful. Grant 
is very aware of his failings and his strengths. Uh, and I think the people he surrounds him with, uh, himself with are as well. Uh, he knows what he is good at. He knows what to stay away from, uh, which is the drink. Right. Uh, but Bernstein, he's probably one of those rare cases where uh, he is good to a point, and he knows that, and yet he still has to go beyond it. And he's not a butcher in the sense that he sends men off to die just because, by God, we're going to take that hill. Um, and, you know, damn the cost. I, I don't get that sense from him. So he's... Oh, he's, no, yeah. He's Although it was butchery that he got ended a up... Center. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, ended up but, being that way, but not by that intention. Right, right. Uh, which is, I think, different than a lot of the guys who failed in his job, uh, or jobs like it. And I find that... I found that a little bit interesting. Now... Uh, one side note here before we really dive into the battle. Uh, a lot of people are, who don't know Civil War history don't know Burnside are probably thinking, what's the deal with the name? You know, isn't his name Sideburns? No. <laughs> it's where we get the term. That's right. Uh, that initially were called Burnsides because he had those mutton chops but nothing on the chin. So it was all sideburn and, and mustache. And uh, he could grow a really good one. I, I gotta admit, he could grow a really good one. And uh, he was known for them. And eventually, that's what they started calling him was uh, Burnside, and they switched it around to Sideburns for whatever reason. Uh, so that's is where we get that. So he's famous for one good thing, and that's <laughs> yeah. the facial hair. <laughs> so Fredericksburg, the Union Army is coming off of. Uh, a large period of inactivity for the most part. After the Battle of Gettysburg in the summer of 1863, they are, or I'm sorry, the Battle of Antietam uh, in 1862. I'm getting my battle. September 62. Uh, September 62. Um, You know, that was, it was a win for the North, but like many of the wins in the Civil War, you know, it's one of those, we can't do too many more wins like this or, you know, we're defeated. Uh, it was a costly win uh, for for the North. So there was a definite necessary period of rest and refit that was needed. And, of course, during this time, uh, McClellan manages to, um, uh, I don't want to say bungle his way out of leadership, but kind of because... Yeah. Uh, it was at this time that I think Lincoln sent him the, the message, if you're not going to do anything with the army, I'd like to borrow it. Right. Uh, yes. Because so, yes. that was the problem. He wouldn't use the army. The Army of the Potomac was well-trained, and it was massive compared to Lee's army. Yeah. Uh, and, McClellan was an immense, immense and wonderful trainer, but that's about it. And he, he thought he, you know, he considered himself the little, little Mac, the little Napoleon, he thought himself all this great stuff. He's one of those people, unlike Burnside, who knew his limitations. He didn't think he had any. And, right. he, and, he, and he continued that way. And uh, he hated Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln tolerated him, oh, my God, so long, so long, because the men loved him. Uh, the men loved him, and he did a good job in camp. That's right. With and he wasn't training. entirely unsuccessful. His problem was he wouldn't be bold. Right. And Lincoln demanded that. And yes. uh, that's and we had, he had to because he knew because uh, Lee certainly didn't suffer from that failing by any means. No. Well, and that's what enabled Lee to be successful was he was willing to be bold and take risks that mm-hmm. other generals were not at this time. Yeah. Uh, and it was Lee's only chance. 
and it was Lee's only chance was to right. be bold. He understood this. To take long chances. So, it actually worked very well to Lee's advantage, too, because he's up against McClellan, you know, during the Peninsula Campaign. And I don't know if Lee knew McClellan very well or how well, but the, the two were just, uh, they were made for each other because McClellan is absolutely going to get smacked every single time because Lee is bold and he is not. Yeah, yeah. So that's the background for uh, Ambrose Burnside taking command of the Army of the Potomac. He knows he has to be bold. He has to take action. That's basically the mandate. You have the job, and the job is to do one thing, attack. Right. So that's the environment. Now, there's some maneuvering that's going on because, you know, it's, it's winter. This is December, and, you know, nobody likes to fight in the winter uh, for, you know, for good reason. And yet he's got, got to attack, so the Confederates managed to maneuver him into a position where he's on one side of the Rappahannock and they're on the other. And he has to cross. Yet the Confederates have basically done a good job of destroying all the bridges in the area. And so he has two choices. He can either move down the river and ford it to get over to that side, in which case, for all he knows, the Confederates will just move on. Uh, and continue this war of maneuver, uh, and, and basically it's, it's its own war of attrition in its own way, uh, because it's, it's very difficult on the armies to keep doing this in the dead of winter. Or he can build pontoon bridges and cross at uh, Fredericksburg. He chooses the latter because he, he feels like he has to take action. So that's the environment. Now, Fredericksburg is elevated... And, you know, it, it's on a river, so the river is going to be at the lowest level by definition. The, liver, the river is always the lowest geographic level uh, because that's where the water descends to. So the Confederates have the high ground. And if they had seen Revenge of the Sith, they would know. You don't attack if your opponent has the high ground. The battle's over at that point. That's right. And <clears throat> yet he still feels like he has to attack. So the town is on the river... Confederates have plenty of places to snipe and to uh, uh, basically harass uh, the Army of the Potomac while they're trying to build these pontoon bridges. And, yeah, there's some uh, artillery, but it's not really used to great effect. So it, it takes a great deal of effort and loss of life in the Engineering Corps to get these pontoon bridges uh, actually built and some small number of men across the river. And it's probably at that point when the battle is pretty much decided that it's going to go badly, in my opinion. Uh, and you guys can jump in on this. I know I'm, I'm kind of laying this out uh, in, in myself here. But um, it's at that point where when they get some men across that they think they've got the Confederates on the run because Lee has not positioned his two corps in the town. Right. They're positioned on Marie's Heights. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, uh, what's the other location where Stonewall is? Um, it's it's further up, yeah. Uh, further up, and it's off to. Uh, I want to say it's off to um, uh, Longstreet's right, but I could be wrong. Uh, could be incorrect. Either way, the two corps are are separated, mm -hmm. and the bulk of uh, Longstreet's corps is behind the Stonewall mm -hmm. in a. Sunken Road, so they are well protected. 
which is and just outside the, the city, just yeah. outside the city yeah. proper, which that's something that I think deserves a little bit of understanding is, and I've been to Fredericksburg. I was there two years ago. Of course, it's modern now, but you can take the driving tour all over the place, uh, and, and it puts you at different locations. And when you see the, see the land, the city is between Marie's Heights, where the Confederates are, and the Rappahannock. So that's one of the reasons Burnside is it's almost like they're laying a trap. When they come across, they're there in the city, and they, they're distracted by all this stuff. Uh, yeah, the movie, there's some moving that goes on initially. Goes on. That's because they're yeah. they're they're funneled into a narrow point uh, through the main part of the city, uh, and they and they're peeling themselves off. The, the movie Gods and Generals, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, uh, does a fantastic job of showing all this because it loses its impetus, and it literally is supposedly this irresistible force that comes up against the absolute immovable object. Because yeah. there's no way once you co you come out beyond this the town, you see all those huge field and the confederates behind a stone wall yeah you martin know. what do you have to, to add to that yeah i mean if it would help for the listeners to picture it you can kind of picture the rappahannock running basically north south and burnside's on the eastern side of the river which is ironic because if he had just turned around he could have headed straight to, to richmond and there wouldn't have been that much between him and richmond uh, so, now, granted, Lee would have been able to pursue him because Lee was that much better, but I always yeah. found that interesting. He was closer yeah. to Richmond than Lee was. And that was his ultimate objective, uh, at least yeah. the, way it was, the way he explained it, is yeah. that he wants, to get, he wants to take on Lee, but he also wants to get to Richmond, too. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's the whole point of this is a movement to circle to Richmond. Um, and initially, you know, Robert's on the money. You know, the, Lee's people were not there um, when he first got to the Rappahannock. But he's got to get across, and there's a huge delay in getting the pontoons shipped down from New York, I think it is, and in that time, um, you know, Lee's able to bring both Longstreet and Jackson uh, to the battle on the west side of the Rappahannock, uh, to the west of, of the little town, basically, and... Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, the fatal flaw was those pontoon bridges. This would have been a very different thing if he could have got if he had those in hand and was able to cross yeah. the Rappahannock well, before the Confederates got there. You always like got to take the high ground. Well, yeah. I think that there was there were probably enough there uh, at the time of the when he was trying to get the the pontoons there um, to keep keep him where he was because you know it took it only took a very small force on the riverbanks and up into the city to keep the pontoons are being built quickly. Right. So, yeah. and, and that was kind of my whole point. And it's part of Martin's point about, and, and yours, uh, Francis, about this, this booby trap being laid for him. Uh, it, they were trying to funnel him into a narrow corridor. Uh, whether intentional or not, the effect was you bunch everybody together and it only takes a small number of men to keep them occupied. Mm -hmm. And you're able to, to funnel them because they're not going to go past these pockets of resistance without trying to take them out. And all the men have to do is fall back and uh, to their next prepared position yes. and keep sniping. So they were able to keep them really busy for a long time. Yeah. And that was the plan, was, was, and, to, and that was the plan. To, to draw the Union in through the town but not really make a big resistance in the town. Just to right, just enough back. to make a show of it. Yeah, because they knew they had the high ground. They knew they had the stone wall on Marie's Heights. And they were prepared there. 
Yeah, you know, yeah. It's not like it's a fallback position. That was the primary position, mm-hmm. and that's what you know. Today, you know, we would think, well, why why couldn't he see that? Well, he didn't have drone coverage. Right. You know, we didn't have satellite coverage. No satellites. Yeah. You know, it was it was not easy to tell what was going on because he had no way to to see that. So when you when you think about Burnside. You know, the folly of his is partially he brought himself to the battle, uh, not being able to change, but also it was from what he, everything he could see, he had them on the run. Yeah, so I don't know design. that very many would have done anything differently. I don't know that Grant would have done anything di- differently, you know? Well, yeah, and um, what, what was so awful about it is once you get out past the town and up against that, flanking maneuver, which is what they're trying to do, is absolutely impossible. There's just no yeah. way to do that. And that's when, the, that's when you get this, oh, shit moment. You should have. At least the commanders on the ground are saying, we can't do anything. So all, right. all we can do is, you know, to, to go cling on on you, die well. Because <laughs> that's right. what they did. Today is a good day to die. That's right. Well, and and so many did. The attack on the heights over and over and over. And yeah. there's the great it sin. Would have been, you know, it would have been obvious, no, we, we shouldn't be just charging back up this hill again. Right. One, uh, maybe twice. After that, you should should have just left it alone. Because they never back. got closer than about 20 yards, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and they never actually breached the wall, which in most major battles, you're going to have at least some skirmish at the line that is being attacked. That didn't happen here. Yeah. Well, part of the reason of that, for that is two, really two reasons. One, Lee's army is very well trained, they're very well supplied, and they're very well deployed. But also, if you were to take this forward 50, 60 years, World War One, th- these guys have muskets, smoothbore muskets. Yeah. They're, they're notoriously inaccurate. That's one of the reasons that the, that the uh, assaults kept coming, because enough people survived to continue to reform and do it again. If this were World War I, they would have all been mowed completely down. Right, there and were no guns. Well, and it's not just so much the, um, uh, there's enough that survived, because, you know, uh, division and company after company after company were just shattered against that stone wall. And, and they don't even know it's coming, because they're all coming over behind them, through the town, over the pontoon bridges. Next thing you know, they're there with all these bodies. Right, and the guys that are, you know, trying to... to, to to make their way back down, you know, they're uh, uh, in what would eventually be called uh, um, shell shock and post-traumatic stress. Absolutely. You know, they're in the depths of it that quickly. I mean, because it was just an incredible killing ground. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite, and it's favorite because it's mo- one of the most poignant movies, uh, uh, moments in the movie, Guns and Generals, is when you have the two Irish brigades. Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. One against the other. These are both Catholic groups. It's not like Catholics against the Protestants. And the men at Marie's Heights uh, were brought to tears because they knew who they were fighting. And when you, when you think about where they're coming from uh, in Ireland, for another Catholic Irishman to fire on, you know, one to fire on another uh, and to have to slaughter them like that had to be a nearly impossible thing for them to endure. Oh, they 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 did they deployed, showed that so well because the guys behind I forget the exact line, but some of the the guys behind the the wall were saying, "Why don't you run? Why don't you go away? Don't make me kill you!" Right. And right. it's because because the, and the, you see the emotion and the pathos. There's there's Martin. There's one of your favorite words. Yeah. Uh, 
in, in this moment that so perfectly illustrates uh, – I can't say enough good things about that movie uh, because if you see that and spend the time with it, you understand Fredericksburg very, very well because yeah. they, they filmed it there, and you can see the way it lays out, and it's very, it's very accurate, yeah. which really only serves to reinforce our entire premise. This was a folly. This yeah. should have not, this should not have gone on as long as it did. Right. See, and that's the, that's the key here. What makes it a folly is that he couldn't change course. That's right. And, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting. Even though Longstreet was the one who was being directly attacked, it was uh, Stonewall was actually the only one that was actually ever really threatened. Because there's a point uh, which uh, Stonewall says, sends a message to Longstreet giving him advice. And basically Longstreet says, Screw you, I got this. You need to look to your own left over there because you're about to be overrun. That's right, because he was the flank. And right. that's the only, the only weak point that there was. Unfortunately, the Federals just didn't really realize that. They kind yeah. of blundered into part of it. Well, and again, that goes back to not having any real, real-time reconnaissance. Yeah, uh, no intelligence possible. either, which is odd, because you would have thought they would have known the city better well, uh, at this point. Even though it's not there. Remember, though, this is in the 1860s. It wasn't until the 1870s, 80s, and 90s uh, where the Germans developed the concept, the true concept of the general staff. And the general staff's job was to war game every contingency. Right. And you know that's something that we really ought to consider doing an historical episode on is that innovation because oh, well, yeah. it really change the paper warfare. We got the whole that concept of military intelligence. Fast. Yeah, that's yeah. a big, big deal. And had Burnside had better, I don't know, he's, as you say, he still brought himself. I don't know if he would have changed. Uh, there's a moment in, uh, and Martin and I were talking about this earlier, uh, in the movie where uh, uh, Hancock, it, it wasn't him that actually had the conversation, but they put him in there uh, because they right. brought, my, Brian Mallon was the actor. He was saying, this is not going to work. Let me take a core and go up north and flank these guys. Go around. And Burnside famously says, well, the plan's already been approved. And you can just, I don't remember the actor who played Burnside, but it's so perfect. He's looking like, what are you talking about? It's like he's clueless about and, that. And even that's concept. another thing uh, to, to look at here. You know, when we think of warfare and how battle plans are put together, it was an entirely different thing in the 1860s. They would call a council of war of all the corps commanders and maybe yeah. some of the, the really good brigade commanders, uh, divisional commanders, yeah. and they would discuss things and they'd hash it out and they would come to some kind of consensus or even a vote. That's so foreign to how we would think about how a war would be prosecuted. Well, the Germans changed that and uh, exactly. World War One, and we discovered it don't work that way. It can't work that way. Yeah. Uh, we so, only did it once, I think. Pardon? I think Grant only had the War Council once. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, to be honest, yeah, uh, I'm probably doing a disservice to Grant. It's not the Germans that created that pro concept. It was Grant. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it still is the Germans. Who but, perfected it, certainly. But Grant, I don't think he really has a true war uh, 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 general staff in that sense because he doesn't have a bunch of guys over here uh, 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 wargaming things and, and coming up with all these contingency plans because that's really what the general staff does. Right. Yeah. Uh, 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 what if? German. But he's not willing to put everything to a vote. Right. Really. That's what I meant. That's and what I was referring he's to. The, yeah. He's the first one to to stop doing that. So 
Burnside, when he says the plan has already been approved, he doesn't mean he's already approved it. He means right. the entire War Council has approved it. Right. He yeah. doesn't feel like he can change that. Yeah, exactly. And, and which the, is, you know, again, something that is so foreign to us. In many ways, I, you know, we like to blame Burnside for this, but as is the case with so many of these historical events and figures that we examine, I don't think we can lay 100% of the blame for this battle and its, its horrible outcome on Burnside alone. It's partially the structure, the way the army is, is built, the way the army has been governed the entire war, and maybe even before that, I don't know, because you know, it's a very small professional army uh, prior to the beginning of the war. It's less than 50,000 men. Yeah, these guys can only do what they know. Right, they can only do what they know. It's very difficult to uh, innovate in the middle of a battle, uh, right. and even in the middle of a war. Grant, the reason he is so successful, he and Sherman, is that they have that ability to innovate on the fly. And they, and they uh, empower that. Uh, in their commanders as well, which yes. you know that, and that's it's very critical that uh, the battles are won and lost by the initiative of good staff, uh, good command brigade, the brigade level in many respects. Well, I and, think there's a few sergeants that might disagree with that. But well, I I know, I'm, I'm trying not to go too too deep down in there, but uh, ultimately, yeah, he can, it's 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 very micro, and the trick is to be able to manage the macro that uh, emphasizes and celebrates that and empowers yeah, that. Yeah. Grant is probably the first um, first example that we can see in history of um, of modern day leadership, in the sense that he sets the goal, maybe some broad parameters, yep. but he leaves most of the execution to the guys on the ground. That's right. And he expects As certain you know. outcomes, yep. but you know there there's more leeway. We don't have that yet here at Fredericksburg. And and I forget because again uh, there's just so much to try and absorb before we do one of these. Uh, but basically, after how many uh, attempts to take Maurice Heights, uh, his commanders, his corps commanders, finally convince him that no, we we can't do this. We have to we have to go back because right. this is just uh, it, it, it's suicide. Right. Well, it's after one overnight. I mean, there's uh, they they stop and, and literally they camp amongst the dead. Uh, those that are surviving there uh, in the Union. Yeah, lines. there uh, is a, a brief truce, uh, probably more than once, but there's a brief truce where uh, um, men are allowed to go out and minister to those who are who are fallen, uh, which is not uncommon in this war. Right. Uh, which, uh, you know, it's probably one of the most civil and uncivil civil wars that you will find uh, yeah. in that sense, uh, because yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of that. Uh, yeah, Francis so, kind of. Martin, you, you've been relatively quiet during this particular one. Uh, Francis and I have been going to town. What have you yeah. got to add? You know, uh, Francis kind of stole my word that I was going to use there. Uh, uh, again, if you're if a listener is interested in this battle, not only is the film Gods and Generals or the book Gods and Generals uh, a, a very good portrayal and depiction of these events, but I'll just also mention that. Um, the Jeffrey Ward, Rick Burns, and Ken Burns, The Civil War uh, book based on the Ken Burns uh, series also is very good with this uh, this battle. But, yeah, it's very moving that first night uh, with the Union men trapped 
on the hillside just below Marie's Heights. Again, it's December. Uh, it starts, the temperature uh, drops, um, and they're just trapped uh, living in uh, among the dead, um, including um, the 20th Maine. Right, yes. And Joshua, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who would all find glory, um, well, glory, uh, they wouldn't think it was glory, but they, they saved the Union position at Gettysburg at Little Round Top. Right. right. He is um, not yet in command, but he is he's there, second yeah. in command. Yeah, he's yeah. second in command, yeah. So it's just a few months later, um, but the, the pathos is right. This The, the heartbreaking uh, aspect of this battle and the failure of the Union leadership, again, to call this off and, and to just, like we say with Mulkey, you know, okay, you've gotten punched in the face. Now it's time to change the plan. And they just they just wouldn't. It was just assault after assault after assault. Yeah, yeah, and you know, in some ways, as I was saying earlier about how you can't lay 100% of the blame for this at Burnside's feet. You know, honestly, I think in some ways you have to lay some of the blame uh, on Lincoln uh, because he was pushing so hard for a vigorous attack, and after seeing general after general after general be sacked. You know, Burnside, I just think he's got it in his mind that he has got to do whatever it takes, no matter the cost. Right, yeah. And I think all of them probably have that in mind. Sure. Yeah, it's kind of an inevitable result of what's gone before. And whether Lincoln stated it absolutely or Burnside's believed it, uh, I think it's probably both, uh, the, the expectation was set that ultimately set the seeds for the doom of this because they yeah. were they were so eager they didn't really give a rat's ass we're going to attack and that is exactly the wrong way to do this because when you're up against somebody as clever uh, as lee who absolutely just uh, exploited every resource here and the federals are kind of blind how do you exactly. attack but at blind? the same time lee didn't have to be a genius to get this oh well no that's very Burnside's true moving i mean everything again is moving super slow yeah when we t- we'll talk about Burnside's next next episode with yeah. Chancellorsville, there's Lee's genius. Burnside's daughter. It's obvious that the thing to do is to take the high ground on the far side of the town and let Burnside come to you. Um, yes. I mean, the, the three of us could have figured this out uh, just looking at the place. So, well, even right. though that's especially that stone not... wall running the length of that field. I mean, good God. The Marie's Heights, yeah. But then again, that's against conventional thinking at this time, though. Uh, The conventional thinking is maneuver and attack. This is Napoleon. And Lee is visionary enough to foresee that defensive warfare still is valued and indeed wins the day. He's a little bit of a free thinker ahead of time. That's Longstreet, though. Longstreet's the guy that really knows warfare. Longstreet is the master of defensive warfare. He's really the first guy who came up with the idea, not the idea, but he really, he really brought to perfection for the time trench warfare. Yeah. Uh, now, granted, that's later, but he was so good at, at using his core to its best advantage. You know, he, mm-hmm. he was designed and trained to be the anvil that the enemy would basically waste itself against. Yeah. And as we see in Chancellorsville, you know, Stonewall may be the hammer, but without that anvil of, of Longstreet, uh, you know, a lot of what those two together do just don't work out. That's right. uh, they really were 
so complimentary. That's and we don't see in this battle problem. so much because this is mostly Longstreet's battle. Right. Yeah, because he's, he's basically bearing the brunt. But then again, it's a defensive war. It's one of the reasons Gettysburg he was so angry at because he didn't want to do it this way. He was actually forced into the offensive position, which is a place he didn't want to be. Well, he, I, I don't think it was so much that he didn't want to be in the offensive, but he recognized that the, the roles were reversed, not to the exact same degree, Right, uh, because it was you know the, the the armies were so spread out, but the conditions, especially for Pickett's charge, were very similar. It oh, wasn't absolutely. quite the same uphill slope, but you know, a, as the movie said, you know, no fifteen thousand men ever arrayed could take that position. That's right. You know, and he even <clears throat> he even makes a reference to the fact now they have the stone wall like we had at Fredericksburg. Yeah. Right. And not again. I don't know if this is historical, but you know, you see in the movie Gettysburg. The men on the Union side, they yell back, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg. That was, that was Webb's Corps, and yes, uh, yes. Uh, and, uh, not Corps, but Webb's division. And yes, that's exactly what they did, because many of them were veterans who yes. recognized they survived that, that, yes. that, that they were, this is the comeuppance. Yes. This is when things turn around. Always, always take the high ground. Always. Um, Longstreet was the guy who posited that with the new weapons, as, as the rifled musket and the breech loaders began to begin to come online he's the guy saying look to take a position any kind of single position is going to take at least three men and two of them are going to die in the attempt or at least be wounded yeah yeah well yeah um, he recognizes the power that, of technology that, that one rifleman can hold off basically three people at a time at right. least yeah 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 and, he knew Except, and you know once you get the breech loaders in there that number goes up well, yeah, uh, it, it gets to the point by 1864, uh, the Confederates are saying, you know, them damn Yankees, they load on Sunday and fire all week. Because, you know, a lot of them have those Henry repeating carbines, the cavalry does. Yeah. And they, uh, once that becomes almost standard issue, uh, technology has won. You know, I, I kind of slighted uh, Lee unintentionally earlier uh, when I talked about Grant being the uh, um, one of the, the first to show modern leadership. Really, he's taking a page from Lee to the extreme, because Lee does it first. Uh, Lee is very good, unlike McClellan and Burnside and Hooker and all of the others, at saying, all right, this is what we're going to do. Uh, now, it's also his weakness at Gettysburg when he says, take those heights if practicable. That's right. You know, the commanding general will not allow a flanket movement around those hills as long as exactly. the, vague, the vague orders, and we'll talk about that at Gettysburg and, and the yes. Stonewall. That's right. We, you know, what's the difference in the in the you know the kind of vague orders that he could give to Stonewall that he couldn't give to the commanders who replaced him? But right, Ewell uh, was not the same kind of commander, but nobody was the same kind of commander that that. Uh, that Jackson was. Jackson was. And yeah. nobody was the same kind of commander that Longstreet was when he was out of the war for nine months. That was a dark period, too. Because then Lee was down his two best people. Because yeah. oh, yeah. Stonewall Jackson was already gone. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, uh, that Lee could do that with his guys, with his, his two corps commanders. Uh, because Lee, Jackson, and Longstreet, to me, are, um, in many ways, they are, uh, they're phenomenal generals uh, on their own. Uh, you know, Longstreet has a horrible reputation for having the slows, uh, <laughs> which is 
totally undeserved. No, well, compared to Jackson, everybody does. Well, no. yes. Uh, but, you know, his march in the wilderness to get to, uh, uh, to the battle to save the rest of the Confederate army is phenomenal. It's, is as good, if not better, than anything Jackson ever did. That's right. And, he, and he's not well rewarded for it. And he, yeah. And, and, well, as we, all, as we have often said, Longstreet had the misfortune of not dying of his wounds. Yes, and becoming a Republican afterwards. In the and becoming a Republican, yeah. He, that, that, that his him. two cardinal sins there. So, <clears throat> but it's interesting that, that these three together are, real, to my mind, they are the key to, for the Confederacy lasting four years. Because mm -hmm. if you take any one of them out at the beginning... I think it collapses much sooner. And I think by taking Jackson out at the height, at their high point, you know, people say that, uh, that, that um, the men who reached the, the stone wall at Gettysburg, that was the high point of the Confederacy, the high water mark. That wasn't the high water. Chancellorsville, to me, was the high water that mark. It is, yeah. It was, it was Lee's genius. Um, it was the high water mark at Gettysburg because that was the farthest they ever got in northern territory. But as far as military power, it was Chancellorsville. And, you know, those guys, those commanders, they just ran rings around guys like Burnside. Mm -hmm. and well, and I think, I think Lee understood that, too, because after Jackson dies, he takes this marvelous organization of him with two corps commanders and breaks it into three. He recognizes he doesn't have anybody that can take Jackson. It takes two right. guys to take that. So he has to completely and radically reorganize things. I do believe right. that that had a, a, a great effect. Uh, Longstreet could not be spread any further than he was. Right, and because he didn't have many men as he used to. That's right. And the guys, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, as much as I admire A.P. Hill, uh, and I'm not a big fan of uh, Baldy Ewell, those guys didn't have it. They really didn't. Uh, Hill, was, Hill was very good as a Division commander, fantastic division commander. He was kind of like Burnside. Exactly. He could only go so far. He could only go so far. Uh, he was capable. He wasn't like uh, he wasn't like uh, General Hood, who uh, absolutely decimated the Army of Tennessee at the Battle of Franklin, who was way promoted above his abilities. Yeah. Uh, uh, Hill was capable, but just barely. And Ewell was totally out of his depth. And I think well, when we get to the Gettysburg of, episode, we'll talk about this more. Yeah. Well, and this is part of the. So we talk about Burnside's folly, and it's obviously it, it, it's it's folly. I don't have the numbers. I don't know if one of you do uh, about the the losses here, but uh, it um, was two to one. Uh, I can tell you that I don't have the numbers right in front of me. But right, uh, the, the ratio was thousand Union casualties. Twelve thousand. Yes, uh, well over twelve thousand Union casualties, and, uh, and, a, and a good chunk of those are are um, the men up against Longstreet going up the hillside to Marie's Heights and the right. So one of the one of the reasons you know we call that's one of the reasons why we call this his folly because in retrospect we can think you know oh my god you were just so stupid to do this. But on the other hand as far as the prosecution of the war this is a minor blip for the union. Well that's And true. this I think is a great illustration of how the Union was almost destined to win this, if it, especially if it kept dragging on. Mm -hmm. uh, because look at how many commanders the entire Army of the Potomac went through. 
and look at all the stuff. Look at how many cores they had. Oh, yeah. yeah at one point, the Army of the Potomac was 200,000 men at, at its height. And granted, <laughs> you know, little Mac couldn't figure out that he was not you know, outnumbered two to one. He outnumbered his opponents by at least two to one. The war could have been over in 1862 had McClellan pressed his advantage. Um, but the North was able to um, overcome all of these little follies. And in the grand scheme of things, they are little when you compared to uh, the massive losses at Gettysburg and the crater at Petersburg uh, and all of these other places in the wilderness that all, the both sides uh, yeah. endure. Spotsylvania, Cold Harbor, yeah, would dwarf uh, all of these, yeah, or yeah, dwarf so. this one. Yeah, but this was politically a, a disaster. This was something that really uh, Lee was Lee's victory in this is not necessarily on the battlefield. It's more at the political area because people are thinking we don't have the will or the ability to defeat him. That's what Lee is trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. I don't think he did, but no. after a debacle like this, he certainly came closer to that. Martin? Well, the political ramifications aren't so much on the Confederate side. It's Burnside's scrambling after this battle. Uh, what comes next is known very famously as the Mud March yes. uh, in January, where he just kind of really doesn't know what to do now. And he's got a bunch of plans. It's January. It starts pouring down rain. And all of this, they just end up sitting in the mud. And basically, the ramifications are is that the Army of the Potomac is nearly broken here. Their morale. They don't yeah, trust yeah. any of the commanders anymore at all. Right. Um, so... It backs Lincoln into a corner, basically, that, okay, I don't have much choice here. Burnside's really only lost one battle, but everything's a mess, Yeah. and, I, and I've got to I've got to punt and figure out something else. Yeah, and he, he goes passed for on the, uh, the Army of the Potomac to Joe Hooker here. Um, fighting Joe, that's supposedly... Yeah, Fighting he Joe. Was, um, he, he had the reputation for being not being afraid to attack. Yeah. Right, which, as we have, I, I think we have uh, kind of danced around, but yeah, that's almost ex almost exactly the wrong kind of general for this war. Yeah. Um, you can't always attack. That's right. And because this is the war that changed the face. This is, many consider this to be the first modern war. Right. Yeah. Because of the arms that are involved. It's not fully modern. Because that's really World War One, Right. Because until you get the machine gun in there, it's not truly modern in the sense that we think of it. Yeah. But it's still modern in the sense that you've got massive armies. And there, it's the, one of the first wars where warfare is nearly continuous. Uh, it's not as continuous as World War One, but, you know, there's multiple battles every year. And it's also the first one where it's not basically decided in one or two battles. Mm -hmm. You know, when we look at previous wars, uh, you have relatively small armies that met on the battlefield, and one battle usually decided it. Uh, maybe a couple, maybe a series if you got a really good commander on both sides. Well, Napoleon's uh, kind of the example for a lot of that, because every time he won something, uh, it changed the political, uh, the way the map was drawn. 
Right. And, then he, and he just kept going, and he, and he kept winning. And those are the tactics that both sides are using because they see him as this god of warfare and not realizing that he's you know 50 years too uh, ago. And I think that's yeah. a lot of the problem is yeah. that Lee, I think, understood better. I know Longstreet did, but most of the rest of them, they didn't get it. They're still fighting well, like this is Napoleon. Yeah. Like we talked about, it, you know, the difference is so many of these guys got that bloody nose and didn't know what to do from there. So it's just go home or, yeah. or like run Burnside, back and crawl under the bed. Or, yeah, march around in the mud. And the difference being that Grant understands no, all, if I get a bloody nose, all I've got to do is just come to grips with Lee and stay there. Right, because the guy who gives you a bloody nose, he's close enough for you to punch back. That's right. Yeah. Get him in a clinch and stay yeah. with him. Yeah. Don't let him go. And that's, so, that's Burnside's mistake here in that he disengages. There, you know you've gone too slow. You know Lee's caught up to you. There's no possibility now of, of crossing the Rappahannock and making the success of this. But instead of going home, just stay. Make, another, make a new plan and find right. a way to come to grips with Lee and keep going. Rather than, than recrossing the Rappahannock to go back to where you started, you know, if he had stayed where he was, he at least would have been closer to Lee, could have kept a better eye on him. Yeah. You yeah. didn't have to attack him, but you know, because eventually, if he sits there long enough, Lee's going to want to attack him. That's right. This is something that they don't get, because in their mind, and this is the mind of almost every general of the time, it is horrible to be on the defense because the attacker in their mind is the guy who's going to win and that's that's not the way this works all the time eventually it does yeah you think if they studied waterloo they'd realize it but wellington wins waterloo because he fights a 100 percent defensive battle against the great attacker and he neutralizes him right Uh, and yet for some reason they don't think that way right and it's and of course, you know the scale here is unheard of. This is this, this is something that nobody's ever dealt with before. So I think there's some forgiveness in that sense too. That you know, how do you deal with the fact that you that you've lost twelve thousand men? This is not something that is in anybody's experience. Anybody who's lost twelve thousand men has been utterly defeated. Yeah. Yet the Army of the Potomac, had it been better led, was not utterly defeated. Now, morally, uh, you know, uh, in the sense of morale, not morally, but in the sense of morale, yes, it was utterly defeated. Yeah. But it was not utterly defeated as a fighting force. It was not smashed and dispersed. Right. Whereas 12,000 casualties in an earlier war would have dispersed the army. Yeah. These are professionals. And it's funny, the, 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 the men on the ground are the professionals, the generals are kind of the, the amateurs learning as they go. Yeah, unfortunately. unfortunately. With a few exceptions. With a few exceptions. Unfortunately, the guys who are learning as they go, the cost is the men on the ground. And, you know, I think that's the thing that really is the great tragedy here, is those yeah. 12,000 men should have never died, that many of them. Uh, and it was just, that's why, that's why we give Burnside such a bad reputation, is because of the men who died uh, needlessly. Is, is how history has judged it. Now, we're, it's a little bit more complicated. As Trevor right. Slattery would say, yeah. it's complicated. Now, but, uh, he didn't lose as many men as, as Mac did at Antietam, 
Right. But because he's coming off of Antietam, this is is horrible to their morale. Yes. And things are going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is the battle uh, after which Lincoln famously says, "If there's a worse place than hell, I am in it." Right. You know, he is. He's very. He's very much right because for the next six months, uh, things do not go well until Gettysburg. And even at Gettysburg, it's not a sure thing until the end. Right. And even after Gettysburg, nothing really happens until 1864. Uh, you know, so they're all learning this on the job. Uh, even Lincoln's learning it on the job, but because he has kind of that same thing: attack, attack, attack. But he understands. Attack, 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 because we have all of the, the the benefits. We have all of the advantages. We have more yeah. men. We have we more should be able material. To do we have more arms. We have, uh, if not necessarily better arms, they're coming soon. And that's what we, I think what we talked about. Lee, I don't know if he necessarily understood it to that same degree that I just laid it out, because he was also more concerned with defending Virginia than he was with anything else. Uh yeah, when he moved into Maryland and Pennsylvania in the two uh, two campaigns in 1862 and 1863, uh, they were seen as ways to uh, they're they're twofold. One, get the Army of the Potomac out of your home state, right? And two, you know, get your army out of your home state so you can you know stop eating up all the food that the civilians need. Forage off the enemy. But, Right, forage off the enemy. And it's just such a different way of looking at things. I don't know. It just seems interesting after all this discussion. You know, I, ha- I, have, I have more sympathy for Burnside uh, doing this episode than I ever did before. <laughs> I yeah, I would, I would agree with you on that. He was in an untenable position. Uh, and, and the tragedy is kind of the Shakespearean tragedy. He knew it. He knew it going in. He knew he couldn't do this. Uh, and he, but he, he, he tried. He, he was not a coward. He was a brave man. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I would like to, and we don't really have time to get into you know, his thoughts after the fact, because he did write some stuff afterwards. He eventually became the governor of Rhode Island. Yeah. Uh, had a fairly successful, he's one of the few generals that when they're sacked from the highest command, that is actually fed back into the system. And he, and he goes on to command a corps and um, as well... Uh, he is involved in the West for a long time after this. He was at Chickamauga, uh, with, along with Longstreet, believe it or not. Uh, both of them are from the East, and yet they made that happen. Uh, and he uh, inf- and is famously or infamously responsible for the crater at Petersburg, which is uh, kind of ends up being a black mark against him again, which is not really fair. He was trying to execute the orders he was given. He was, and, and, and things the crater was it was such a cluster to begin with, but yes. I, if I remember correctly, it was not him that made the change the last that minute. That's correct. That's correct. And that yeah, probably has more to do with the failure. And the fact that nobody really understood how big of an explosion that was going to be. Well, yeah. They're, they're, they were innovating, uh, and right. which is something that Burnside doesn't do well anyway, as we've seen. Uh, mm. So he doesn't really know what's going to happen. He has well, a better nobody, plan. And they, they, they pulled out – I mean, he was supposed to send in a, a, a corps uh, – not a corps, but a, a group of, of, of black soldiers who were trained for this. And yes. they changed it at the last second, saying, "No, you, we don't want you to do that. We think that will enrage. You know, they'll never make it out alive. We've got to send in white guys." Well, and I think that that there was also a little bit of the, the racism of the day, 
that right. we can't trust this black hole. That's exactly right. It was both of it yeah. was both of that. There was, uh, and this is not the last second. So yeah. yes. you've got, and, and they go in. They don't have any siege ladders to get out. So right, because they have to go into a big pit and then yeah. climb out. So yeah. in a way, it's Fredericksburg all over in a very tiny setting. Exactly, and it was. Uh, and one of the commanders responsible, the sub commanders under Burnside is in his tent, drunk off his ass. Yes, the guy who's responsible for executing the plan on the ground is drunk off his ass. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's, that? that's not Burnside's uh, fault. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah oh, no, by no means. But he, he gets the blame only because he yeah. got the blame for before. He well, was, and, you know, you blame the guy at the top. That's, that's, in this war, that's definitely the case. And in most places, it's definitely the case. Uh, you blame the guy at the top. So Burnside's Deadly. folly was definitely... You know, you got to lay the majority of the blame for Fredericksburg at, at his feet because he wouldn't he wouldn't change the plan soon enough. Uh, I, I think we can. I, I think yeah. we're all in agreement there that yeah. Yeah, it's definitely his. Yeah. He's got to own this particular one. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. I think my assessment's a little harsher than than you guys. Um, you know, to me, the, the knowing you know Lee is over there. You know you've gone too slow. You know Lee's caught up to you. You have gotta you've gotta do something different. You've gotta figure out something different than just charging across into the town um and up the heights. It's never going to work. So I think my assessment's a little harsher. Um if it's yeah, all right well, I think we uh, I think we probably agree with that. I think yeah. We're probably more willing to, to to uh give way to some what we would consider mitigating factors. Yeah, yeah. I, I I really lay the blame once those high, once they get beyond the, the and start charging Marie's Heights, I get once I get twice. I do not get for 24 hours. That's where yeah. I think Burnside, if he's the if he's the army commander, that should never have gone on as long as it did. He should have had the guts to realize this isn't working. Let's go, and that's where I think he yeah. failed as a leader. He should have seen that. It's it's not like the guys underneath him didn't and didn't tell him. So yeah. it's not he he had the intelligence. Uh, as in the information, and, and didn't act on it. Right. That to me is absolutely. Um, you know, we well, you know, guys. Bruce Catton, one of my favorite Civil War authors. Um, I've got a bunch of his stuff, and I love it. I think he's probably the best Civil War author ever. Um, Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, his assessment in a book called Mister Lincoln's Army of Burnside. Uh, I'll quote this, Burnside had repeatedly demonstrated that it had been a military tragedy to give him a rank higher than colonel. One reason might have been that with all his deficiencies, Burnside never had any angles of his own to play. He was a simple, honest, loyal soldier doing his best, even if that best was not very good. <laughs> so, Well, you know, that's true. Nobody ever disliked Burnside. Yeah. You don't ever hear that. Yeah. Uh, he 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 doesn't he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't blame his subordinates. He takes he takes his lumps and says, you know, I'm the guy in charge. You know, I'm yeah. you know the buck stops with me, and that endeared him to many. He was, was well just, thought he, of by, yeah, was, he was in by other generals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but, you know, I, I think that's very evident in the fact that he wasn't cashiered out of the the service or yeah. sent off somewhere, you know, uh, to guard some tiny little fort in North Dakota that that nobody had ever heard of. And, and which is what happened to a lot of people. Uh, yeah. you know, and he offered. He offered to resign. And he offered. He offered to fall on the force. And they and, wouldn't you know, do it. Sorry. It's, 
listeners, one of the, the difficulties with <laughs> recording like this is it's easier to talk over one another than it used to be. Because <laughs> uh, we got much better at that as a group. Because uh, we, we, we were really bad at it for a while, but we got much better. But the technology uh, doesn't always uh, lend itself to, to not yeah. doing that. But, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I'm trying to come up with a good way to, to uh, summarize this in terms of our uh, pointless discussions of eternal questions. Because uh, you know, I, I like it when we can uh, come around to this. And honestly, I'm having a little bit of a, a hard time yeah. uh, with this one because there's so many lessons you could take out of this. Uh, one, uh, what the hell are you doing attacking uphill against an entrenched uh, position? Uh, you know, uh, listen to your subordinates. I mean, there's just so many personal failures in this battle. You know, this is probably one of the things that makes this battle different than many others that we like to talk about is that most of the failures and points of what if are personal decisions or lack thereof. Yeah. As opposed to something like Gettysburg where what if um, you know, Chamberlain had not gotten to the top top of Little Round Top as fast as he did. If he'd been an hour or two later the South would have, you know, rolled up the Confe- the Union lines because they would have been, they would have flanked them and, and just yeah. rolled them up. Uh, this is a little bit different. This is what if he had just decided something different. Um, it, so I guess this is kind of the opposite. If you want to take a lesson out of this or a point, is that one man truly can make a difference in a battle. Uh, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And, and, you know, obviously in Fredericksburg, it's bad. It's very bad. Uh, Even though the extent of the losses are not nearly as great as in something like Antietam or Gettysburg, it's just such a... It's almost a clinic of how not to do a battle. Yeah. You know, I think for me, the the reason to discuss this battle, the reason to talk about Fredericksburg at all, um, is, again, that, what we talk about, that pathos, that, that... sympathizing with those men trapped below the stone wall on Marie's Heights, trapped overnight. Um, listening you know, to the dying. Listening to the dying. They can't get water. They can't get treatment. Um, you know, something very unusual happened that night. Um, you could see the Aurora Borealis in a, that far south that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it moved the men at the time, um, you know, sort of a even God's taking notice of our plight here kind of thing. Um, and again, what you talked about, these men um, tied together, uh, Irishmen versus Irishmen kind of, the, the, they were close enough to see each other. They were close enough to know who was on the other side of that wall, and it, it almost broke everybody's heart. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's that's. I hope this spurs the listener to think about that end of it, and that it's why Fredericksburg's worth looking at, not just as an example of, gee, here's what not to do uh, in a mid 19th century warfare. Um, right, there's, there's a personal tragedy aspect. Yeah, there's stories here. Uh, again, we, we talked about. Um, Gods and generals, in the description of that pathos, um, in the uh, uh, Ronald Maxwell's film, you know, is is a very accurate um, 
you know, um, what do you call it? Um, portrayal, representation. Portrayal, yes, of the novel. Um, you know, uh, it's and, a shame the third movie never got made. Uh, yeah, the last full um, movie. Um, yeah, it was a great book. Yes. So you know, a tip of the head to to Jeffrey Shara uh, for the film and or for the novel and Ronald Maxwell for the film. Um, check these out; they're very, it's very moving, and it's it's it'll make you want to uh, tilt a glass to those men. Yeah, and, and you know, the movie is not just Fredericksburg; it is through Chancellorsville mm-hmm. uh, because it ends with Stonewall's death. Uh, right. Basically. It's really Stonewall's story in me. It's Stonewall's story, yeah. It's not just yes. him, but it's primarily him. Right. It's a good, it's a good a portrayal of the man. Uh, yes, kinda, Stephen Lang was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. And I remember when we had a discussion when we heard he was named for this, because he'd just played Pickett, we're thinking, huh? What? How can you possibly take him who played Pickett so well and make him play Stonewall Jackson? But he nailed it. He nailed it so well. Stephen Lang is a phenomenal actor. Phenomenal actor. That's yeah. correct. He really yeah. is. So, uh, yeah, we could keep pummeling this expired equine, but I think we've probably uh, tapped just about all the things we want to talk about here. Uh, gentlemen, any final comments you want to add? I think we've done a pretty good job of summarizing this, but one last word? No? Um, so, Francis, what do we have up next? Oh, we're going back to Code of Honor next time. Uh, one of our favorite, uh, we love doing this. We always manage to take who knows what we pull from where we pull it uh, and put it all together, and somehow Robert makes it all work. Uh, I wasn't going to say that, but you're welcome to. Uh, Robert somehow manages to make it all work. I'll give you the credit on that because you always go last. We've kind of discovered that, and somehow uh, we don't really play with that too much. We manage to go very uh, universal, very relevant very human in all sorts of ways uh, and uh, words that we can you can use uh, there's yeah. there's there's great wisdom there we didn't write them but we certainly the heck will explore them so tune in next time and join us we know that you'll love it thanks so very much awesome thanks for being with us here every week at snakes and otters a pointless discussion of eternal questions be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts follow us and retweet us we're on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.